I'm Avery Arden, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. Greetings, y'all. I hope you've had a fabulous Pride Month, and that you'll carry that defiant joy into the rest of the year. As this Pride Month comes to a close, a new one begins, Disability Pride Month. It's time now to celebrate the diversity and unique gifts of the disability community, and to push for full rights and accessibility for all. Even if you are currently able-bodied and neurotypical, disability rights are vital to your own liberation. As Fannie Lou Hamer once said, nobody's free till everybody's free. From a trans perspective in particular, I find that ableism is at the root of transphobia and so many other forms of bigotry. The ideology that non-normative bodies are defective and must either be fixed or eradicated oppresses all of us as we fight for full bodily autonomy and self-determination. I discussed this concept back in episode 37 of this podcast. No End to Transphobia Without Uprooting Ableism, where I draw from the wisdom of disability activist Mel Baggs. If you're interested in some disability theology, I humbly recommend you visit my YouTube channel, also called Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, for my Disabled and Blessed video series. You should also check out my friend Laura Summers' Autistic Theology podcast. Finally, I invite you to sign up to receive a short prayer via text every day of July. Each prayer is written by a disabled person of faith and celebrates the holiness of all bodies and minds, laments the evils of ableism, or imagines a more just world for all. Whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent, abled or disabled, my hope is that these prayers will nourish and transform you as you go about your day. See the episode notes for a sign-up link. Can you tell I'm super excited about Disability Pride Month? I am. But let's put that aside for now and move into what this episode is actually about. I have a sermon for you today. One that offers a queer reading of Matthew 25's famous passage on sheep and goats and works of service. A couple weeks ago, I had the honor of preaching for the pride service of a church all the way in Wyoming. They selected the text for me, Matthew 25. Excellent, I thought I've preached on this before. But I ended up writing a fresh sermon from scratch because my original one didn't fit their context as well. And now, for this episode, I've grafted the two sermons together, cutting out a little of one, a little of the other, and fusing what remains. I'm not sure I did an entirely elegant job of it, but for a podcast preaching, I think it'll do. The main message I'm hoping that you, lovely listeners, will get from this sermon is this. That this Matthew text isn't really about our eternal destination, but about the here and now. About the urgency of caring for one another's physical as well as spiritual needs, and about Jesus's intimate identification with the people society rejects. That includes queer and trans people, of course. I think that's all the setup you need. Let's get into the sermon, beginning with a prayer and then the scripture reading. 
May my words bring glory to the God who loves us. Where my words fail, may God's grace step in, weaving wisdom within the hearts and minds of all who hear them. Amen. And now, a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Now when the Son of Humanity comes in his majesty and all his angels are with him, he will sit on his majestic throne. All the peoples will be gathered in front of him. He will separate them from each other, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right side, but the goats he will put on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who will receive good things from my Father. Inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you from before the world began. I was hungry, and you gave me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then those who are righteous will reply to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and give you clothes to wear? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will reply to them, Truly I tell you, when you have done it for one of the least of these siblings of mine, you have done it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Get away from me, you who will receive terrible things. Go into the unending fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't do anything to help you? Then he will answer, Truly I tell you that when you haven't done it for one of the least of these, you haven't done it for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous ones will go into eternal life. A word from God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In 8th century Iraq, a Sufi mystic named Rabia once ran through the city of Basra with a bucket of water in one hand and a torch in the other. When people asked her what she was doing, she told them that the water was to put out the fires of hell, while the torch was to burn down the rewards of paradise. I do not want to worship from fear of punishment or for the promise of reward, she said, but simply out of love for God. It's possible to read our gospel story today either as threatening us with hell or bribing us with paradise in exchange for acts of service, but that would be a disservice to the depth of the text and its powerful message of divine identification with the oppressed 
and mutual aid as the manifestation of God's kingdom here and now. My hope is that we can begin to look at this story with the eyes of the Sufi mystic Rabia, not in fear or greed, but in awe of the God who proclaims oneness with all who suffer here and now. So let's start by unpacking that potential fear of punishment or desire for reward. As always when reading scripture, there's the context to consider. When is Jesus telling this story? and to whom. This is the last of a whole string of parables Jesus has been telling on his journey to Jerusalem, and they are parables, fictional stories intended to be interpreted, not prophecies of literal events. He's told some of these stories to large crowds, and some in private to his friends. This is one of the private ones. As Jesus speaks of sheep and goats, hellfire and paradise, it's for the ears of his closest disciples alone. It's also two days before Passover, as Jesus reminds them right after finishing his parable, two days before he will be handed over to be crucified by the Roman Empire. I can only imagine the stress he is under, the fear of his own impending agony, the urgency he feels to make sure his ministry will carry on after he is gone. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is never quick to pull out the fire and brimstone, but he doesn't have time right now for a gentler message. He knows as well as we do that his friends can be a little slow to get with the picture. If startling them with images of hellfire is what it takes for them to absorb just how important it is to Jesus that they continue to care for oppressed people's physical needs, well then, he'll bring up hell. But he waits till only his closest followers are there before he does so. These are people who have been feeding the hungry, visiting the sick, welcoming the stranger. Heck, there are people who have been the hungry stranger themselves countless times on their travels with him. Surely they are among the sheep in the story, those to whom the Son of Humanity says, Come, inherit the kingdom, for I was hungry and you gave me food. And yet, are there not also times when these same faithful followers have been goats? The Gospels include several instances of the disciples telling somebody sick to shut up, or telling a foreigner to leave Jesus alone. So within the parable, would they not also be told with the goats, when you did not care for the least of these, you did not care for me? And is it not the same for each and every one of us? Don't we all sometimes fail to lend a helping hand and sometimes succeed? So what does that mean for any of us? Are we doomed goats or blessed sheep? I think we're neither, or probably both. Every one of us is a wacky sheep-goat hybrid, and it would do us good to reread this story several times over, first imagining ourselves as a sheep, next as a goat, and finally as one of the hungry naked strangers. As we do so, hopefully we'll start to zoom out from our individual successes and failures, individual punishment or reward, to the bigger picture that is the true focus of the text. The whole of humanity, who are one big flock of sheep-goat hybrids, 
helpers and those in need of help together. The grammar of the Greek points to this focus on community. As the son of humanity speaks to the various groups in this story, he uses the plural form of you. Y'all fed me. Y'all clothed me. Y'all didn't visit me. Y'all didn't welcome me in. As individuals, we simply don't have the time, energy, or resources to reach out to every other individual in pain. But luckily, that's not what we're asked to do. The whole community is called upon to get that done together. It's not about us as individuals tallying up enough brownie points to get into heaven and avoid hell. It's about cultivating communities where compassion is the creed everyone lives by. Places where it doesn't matter who feeds the hungry, so long as the hungry get fed. It's about changing whole social structures so that we no longer have systems that discriminate based on race, sexuality, disability, or anything else. And so that our societies no longer enable homelessness to happen, no longer let sick people die just because they can't afford health care. This communal focus is important because not one of us could possibly be able to take care of every person we encounter all by ourselves. It's just too much. As a community, though, we could get a little closer to that vision of abundant life for all. If I'm having an off day, others can pick up my slack. If I am overwhelmed, I've got friends to help me. If we all work together, we could probably meet the needs of a whole lot of people. Even so, it's too optimistic to think we could meet every need. There will always be diseases we can't cure, always natural disasters we can't fully prevent. Prejudice will always be the sin knocking at our door, hoping to get a foot in. It is vital that we strive to cultivate a world that gets as close as possible to fulfilling all needs. But chances are we won't reach utopia in the here and now. So, if even on a communal scale, we're going to fail to help everyone, does that still make us part goat? And does being even part goat doom us? For me, the happy answer comes from an unlikely source. It's a story from Genesis that, like this one from Matthew, is often used to preach fire and brimstone, eternal punishment for evildoers. And it's used against my own people the LGBTQ plus community. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Jesus's story about sheep and goats is really about compassion, the story of Sodom is really about hospitality. We all know Sodom and Gomorrah's gruesome fate. Because of their crimes, the wrath of God scorches them from the face of the earth. And like I've argued for Matthew 25, That's a communal consequence for communal sin. Because of the cruelty of Sodom's men, who, when Lot does the compassionate thing and welcomes strangers into his home, threaten these guests with violence, the entire community is wiped away. Oof. But the good news in that horrific, too often misused story comes in the chapter right before it, when God is describing their plan to Abraham. There has been a great outcry, God says, against Sodom and Gomorrah. 
People have been crying out to God at the harm these two cities are inflicting. So God's going to scope it out to investigate the cities for signs of evil. And if evil is found there, if Sodom and Gomorrah really are committing these terrible crimes, well, God will act. Now, the good news in this story is that Abraham persuades God to switch their lens around. Instead of looking for evil in Sodom, God will search it for any traces of good. Abraham asks God, would you, who are the just judge, destroy righteous people alongside the wicked ones? And the answer is no. God would not unleash justice upon the innocent. God promises Abraham that they will spare the cities if just ten righteous people are found there. For the sake of those few, God will spare all. To me, that is extremely good news for all of us. Because no matter how exemplary a community is, there will always be something to change, harm we need to fix. If the tiniest drop of wrongdoing could get us sent away to eternal punishment, not one of us would get into heaven. But instead, starting with this conversation with Abraham and moving through history to Jesus' salvific life, death, and resurrection, God has flipped the script. God seeks out the traces of good amid the bad, the wheat amidst the weeds, the glimmers of the kingdom blossoming in a wasteland of viciousness and greed. We might mess up a lot, but if there's evidence of real kindness, even just a little seed, God can work with that. God will choose to call us sheep. After all, Jesus tells those sheep on his right that they've already inherited the kingdom, that it's been waiting for them since the beginning. Heaven is a gift, not something we earn through compassion or lose through cruelty. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter whether or not we act for justice. It does matter. That's why Jesus uses such severe language in his parable on one of the last days he spends with his friends. He wants us to take works of service seriously, but not so that we can pat ourselves on the back and not so we can wallow in guilt. Jesus wants us to take this work seriously because real people, beloved people made in God's image, suffer right here and now when we don't. And by some queer alchemy of divine love, God suffers here and now when we don't. As we learn from our gospel reading today, Christ is intimately present in and through the people the world rejects. To shut them out is to shut Jesus out, not just figuratively, but in a literal, if mystical, way. Let's look over Matthew 25 one more time. In its parabolic vision of that event often called the end times, though really it heralds a fabulous fresh beginning, Jesus returns to earth with a royal retinue of angels. And I'll admit that the image of Christ the King is not one I resonate with. It feels patriarchal. It feels hierarchical in a way that doesn't reflect what kingdom means to me. But with this particular text, I appreciate how the kingly image is set up only to be subverted. Here comes Christ in all his sovereign splendor, flanked by angels and throned in glory. And what does he say? He admits to vulnerability and need. 
He says, I was hungry. I was naked. I was sick and in prison, dependent on others, and you cared for me. You fed me, clothed me, welcomed me. It's no wonder his audience replies, Lord, when did we do any of that for you? Because the image of a heavenly king does not seem to mesh with the image of a hungry, naked, foreign prisoner. It's the upending of expectations that Jesus is so fond of and which I find so delightfully queer. The almighty king answers their confused questions of when they ever fed or clothed, welcomed or visited him with, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these siblings of mine, you did it to me. Notice that Jesus is not using similes here. He doesn't say, the people you've cared for are like siblings to me. He says, those are my siblings. Jesus declares the outcasts of the world his literal, if not biological, siblings, a chosen family that goes deeper than genetics. And still, still his statement goes further. He doesn't only say, that person you helped, that was my sibling, but also, that was me. You cared for me. And it blows me away. And it is impossible to fully wrap my mind around that the power of divine love is so great that the one who loves and the one who is loved become one being. Truly, Jesus is the vine, and we the branches grafted on so that the same roots feed the whole plant. Truly, Jesus is the body, and we the various parts that cannot be removed without bringing pain to all. The power of this divine love reverberates through scripture. It is the love of God in Exodus 3 who says they don't only see their people's oppression and hear their cry, but that they know their people's pain, an intimate knowing in which God co-suffers with them, feeling everything the enslaved Hebrews feel. It's the love of the word made flesh of an immortal, infinite God transitioning into an embodied, finite infant and going through everything that mortal beings go through, birth, hunger, joy, pain, even death. And then, thanks to that grafting of God to us, it's the love that lifts us all up out of death with Jesus. In proclaiming himself not only kin, with the world's outcasts, but literally one with each and every one of them, Jesus empowers us to imagine him in ever newer, ever more expansive ways. He empowered black theologian James Cone to declare that Christ is black and that every time a black person is lynched, Christ is re-crucified with them. He empowered disability theologian Nancy Eastland to declare that God is disabled, to envision the throne of God as a wheelchair, and to point out how the wounds with which Christ rose would have impaired his movement. He empowered gay artist Maxwell Lawton to paint Christ with AIDS lesions 
and photographer Elizabeth Olson Wallen to depict Christ's resurrection wounds as transgender top surgery scars. Though some have decried all these images of Christ as blasphemous, it was Jesus himself who told us that he is one with those whom the world denies food, safety, medical care, freedom, and love. And so I feel empowered to imagine Jesus speaking with the words of a young transgender person to those who support them. Listen. When I was hungry for affirmation, you reassured me of God's love. When I thirsted to be seen, you called me by my chosen name. When my family or faith community kicked me out, you welcomed me in. When I had nothing to wear that matched my gender identity, you held a clothing drive. When I needed gender-affirming care, you protested the bans that prevented me. When the state tried to outlaw my existence, you fought by my side. Do you hear the call of Christ in those words? Does he speak them to you? through you, as both gratitude and challenge, thanks for all you have done, and a call to keep going, keep learning, keep doing more for these whom the world calls least. And then let's flip things around, because as I said before, no one of us should read ourselves only into one group of the Matthew 25 story. You aren't only part of the group that serves others. We are also all, at different points, in different contexts, part of the group that needs to be served. We all have needs, and we all have gifts to share. That interdependence is the beautiful reality of human life. So now I ask you to imagine this. How does Jesus, the sovereign stranger, the outcast king, appear in your need? What hunger? What hurt, what hope does he co-experience with you? Maybe you hunger and thirst for the courage to speak up, or for relief from an illness or grief, or for an end to conflict with a loved one. Jesus hungers and thirsts with you, and paradoxically, he is also the living water that will slake your thirst, the bread of life that will revive you to keep going. Maybe you feel imprisoned by guilt about your own privilege, or by the biases you've been absorbing from birth and can't seem to shake. With love and tenderness, Jesus sits in that prison with you and helps you break the bars down. Have you seen him entering into your pain, bringing new life? Sometimes he shows up as a loved one, reaching out to you just when you thought you were utterly alone. Sometimes he comes as a therapist or an artist or author who inspires you. Sometimes Jesus arrives decked out in drag or in the form of a trans person, inviting you to join them in breaking down the gender norms that constrict us all. Sometimes Jesus comes to you out of your own heart wipes your tears away with your own holy hands, you beautiful, sacred soul. May we all learn to see Christ gazing love back at us through our own eyes.
May we feel Christ embrace us with the arms of our best friend. May we learn to hear Christ's call to action in the cries of the oppressed, prompting us to share their struggle as our own. For that is the kingdom prepared for all of us together from the foundation of the world, a kingdom where God's holy image is recognized and honored in every human being, not in spite of, but in and through our diversity and our interdependence. We live into this kingdom right here and now. Every time we speak up when we could have stayed silent, every time we give a platform to the least of these so that the last are first, every time we extend love where we could have brought indifference or hate. Thanks be to the God who meets us in our suffering and guides us all into abundant life. Amen. <laughs>